You're listening to the eFree Lethbridge Podcast. We began our gathering this morning singing a hymn. A hymn called, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. This is a song from the 19th century. It's a song about the grace and the mercy of God. And yet, for some reason, each time that I sing this song, my heart is stirred not with this truth about God, is it really, what well, is stirred by that, but that's not the primary stirring, this truth about God. It's stirred from verse three. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor, daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness like a fetter Bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart. Take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Now, I have yet to wander away from the Lord, and I don't plan on doing it anytime in the future. But it seems to me that there are a lot of people today wandering. Wandering away. As this verse, these words say, wandering away from the Lord. So the question becomes, how can we protect ourselves from wandering away from the faith? Now, if I could somehow reach back into the first century and bring a a member of one of the house churches that this book uh, that we call Hebrews was written to, and many people believe it was probably house churches in Rome because of some verses that are in the book. We don't know that for sure, but let's, let's think it was. They were house churches in Rome. If I could bring one of those people here this morning, and I would ask her, I would ask him, what is it, what kind of faith was needed for survival in your cultural context. In your context, in a world that called you an atheist because you worshiped Jesus rather than the gods or worshiped the emperor. In a world where your social standing and ability to make a living and provide for your family was diminished or even destroyed because of that faith in Jesus. In a world where, you're, where, where you faced an ever-increasing danger of losing your life for your faith. Now, that was then. But what about now, 21st century Lethbridge? What if I would pull one of you, just pick it, say, come on up here. I'm not going to do that. It's okay. You're safe. What if I would pull one of you up here? and ask a similar question, a question along the lines was something like, what kind of faith is needed for today to be able to survive in this world? In a world seemingly determined to destroy itself through wars and overindulgence. A faith in bodies decaying through disease, neglect, or aging and lonely lives where no one seems to care about you or love you. 
and churches who treat people more as sinful objects of disdain rather than people to be known and loved. In churches divided over anything, and frankly, over everything. In a world where Christians claim to be followers of Jesus Christ, who don't look or act like they even know who Jesus Christ is. So the question becomes, what kind of faith was needed then, first century, Rome as it may be? Or what kind of faith is needed now in 21st century Lethbridge for spiritual survival? Now, before we go about trying to answer these questions and that particular question, because I think it is answered here in Hebrews chapter 11 at the end and Hebrews chapter 12, before we go there, I'd like for us to pray. Now, I know Gibeon's already prayed, and he actually prayed one of my prayers, and thanks, Gibeon, for remembering that. But uh, I'm going to do it again. Because for me, it's important. I think it's for us, it's important. So that we pray together and surrender our thoughts and words and desires and wills to the Spirit of the Lord for understanding, for encouragement, for transformation through his word from Psalm 19, from 1 Samuel chapter 3. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my salvation. Speak, Lord. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. Have you ever given up? Have you ever just quit on something? Now, as I ask the question, maybe something pops into your mind. What is the first time that pops into your mind where you gave up on something? I'll tell you mine as I put the question to myself. The question took me back to to Dallas, Texas, and I was in seminary there, and it was a Greek class. And I was just frankly overwhelmed. I'd fallen behind. I hadn't kept up. And so all of a sudden, here's this paper that had to be done. I mean, I was working long hours at the bank as well as taking all my classes together, trying to keep a family together. I mean, it was a hard time. And so I got the ultimatum. You get this paper in by this time or else. I just couldn't do it. The or else got me. You can see my transcript today, this particular course, incomplete. I didn't finish the course. Couldn't do it. And I faced the consequences from that. Instead of the Master of Theology program that I was in being a four-year program, I expanded it to a five-year program because I couldn't handle that one particular class at that time. A form of giving up is happening if you've kept, you know, attuned to what's going on around us uh, in the world today. It's, it's a form of giving up that we've given labels to, some people call it deconstruction. Some are deconstructing church. Some are deconstructing religion. What they've been a part of and what it should be and what it is and what they think it should be. And, you know, and they, so they just kind of walk away. They try to, well, they tear it apart and hopefully they begin to build something back together again, but not always. 
but also they're deconstructing faith. Some people take that next step. They begin to ask questions about what they thought they believed or what they did actually believe, and now they are not sure they believe that or whether they even should believe that. All kinds of reasons for such deconstruction that we just don't have time uh, to go into uh, this morning. But uh, it's real. I recently talked with somebody here in our church who is deconstructing. And that individual told me that they had finally come back to the place of actually believing that, yeah, perhaps there really is a God. So I just say that to let you know that it is happening. Some people are walking away from the faith. Giving up on faith is what I believe the book of Hebrews is all about. Hebrews 11 and chapter 12 that we go kind of into for the first four verses this morning, it tells us what kind of faith is needed to avoid such deconstruction, to avoid such falling away, as it were, from the faith. Now, Julie and I like to read murder mysteries. I'm sorry if that makes you think less of us now. But we do. We like to read murder mysteries. We've read all the old Agatha Christie classic murder mysteries. And by the way, I recommend highly to you Louise Petting, who is a Quebec writer who writes uh, crime murder mysteries today. They're good reads for you. What's the best way to read a murder mystery? Well, what's the question, Dave? You start at the beginning and read it through to the end, right? No, 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 no. That's not the best way. You start off reading that particular murder mystery. Then you go to the end after a little ways into the book to see how it ends and who did it. And then you go back to where you left off and you finish reading the book to find out how the author, the writer, actually gets to that place. That's the way you read a murder mystery. Now, I know some of you want to debate me about that, and that's okay. But... I think that's how we need to approach this passage before us this morning. Gibeon's read it for us. Maybe you even read it before you came here today. Or you've read it some other time. I'd like for us to go to the end of that passage, see what it says and what it's about, because actually the writer tells us what it's all about. And then we're going to go back and see how the writer gets us there, to that place. So if you open up to Hebrews chapter 11, in this case, Hebrews chapter 12, if you're not there, then uh, go around to uh, the end, verse 3. And the writer says, Think of all the hostility he, that's Jesus, endured from sinful people. Now here it is. Then you won't become weary and give up. That's the purpose. Then you won't become weary and give up. Now, if you think I'm overplaying this, and it's possible, I suppose, but I don't think I am, because, you see, that's not the only place in this book of Hebrews that 
there are extended passages about not giving up that are here. It's in Hebrews chapter 12 and Hebrews chapter, uh, I'm sorry, Hebrews chapter 2 and Hebrews chapter 3 and chapter 4 and chapter 5 and chapter 6 and chapter 10 and now here in chapter 12. It's a repeating refrain throughout the whole book. Don't give up. Don't throw out your faith. Now, one more point I'd like to make before we now dive into the text to see how we get there. And that's simply this. The word faith, and by the way, for all of you budding Greek scholars out there, uh, the noun form is pistis in Greek, and the verb form is pistuo. Now, the thing is, is that word is throughout the New Testament. And, it's tra- and how it's translated depends upon the context that's there. It can be translated, first of all, as the faith. That's the word, and that's, and, and, in other words, what we believe. In fact, we kind of sang about that this morning, didn't we? I believe in God the Father. I believe in God the Son. That's the faith, what we believe. Secondly, it can be translated simply as faith, and that's a singular act of faith, of trust, of believing, of committing to that. And then thirdly, it can be translated faithfulness. And faithfulness is a longer sense of trusting over time. Now, frankly, I think that the book of Hebrews when it uses that word faith, yeah, behind it is that initial, that one singular act of faith of putting your trust, as it were, in this book is about putting your trust in Jesus. I think that singular act of faith is there. But overall, it's talking about faithfulness. And that faith being over a long period of time, and as the writer here says in chapter 12, of not giving up, of not quitting. So, now, how does the writer of Hebrews close out his dive into what we call the Faith Hall of Fame in chapter 11? And I think he does it in three different ways. He talks about the glad, he talks about the sad, and then he talks about the gritty. Now, don't get overexcited about the word gritty. You're not going to find it in the text. It's my creation. But I think that word gritty tells us about what really is going on here, and it gives some context, and it actually gives some definition and character to this faith that we need to have for ourselves so that we don't give up and walk away from faith. First of all, the glad. In chapter 11, he begins in verse 32, and... um, He says, how much more do I need to say? It would take too long to recount the stories of the faith of, and then he goes on. It's just like a preacher, isn't it? On a Sunday morning, I did it earlier here in the sermon. We could talk about this, but there's not enough time to talk about that this morning. So you, you take it later, but we'll go on. Well, he's saying that here. I mean, what we've seen so far in chapter 11, he said, there's many more people that we could talk about as far as faith is concerned. 
And he names some of them. He says Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah and David and Samuel. And by the way, you look at that list and you say, wow, why is that person named? You wonder. And then, frankly, you look at that list too and you think, why isn't this, this person named? But that's the list as he gives. He names some. And then, uh, I keep saying he, we don't really know who wrote the book of Hebrews. Uh, but then he goes on and he doesn't name others, but he gives a description. And if we read behind the description, we could put names to those. And I think he actually then talks about Daniel. He talks about Daniel's three friends, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He talks about Elijah. He talks about Elisha. Now you can figure out in the text here where those people are, but I believe they're there. And it's these people that he continues this whole sense of the glad. You know, we talk about the good, the bad, and the ugly. Well, I didn't want to use those terms this morning, so I said the glad, the sad, and the gritty. We talk about the glad times. These are the good times. These are the times that you and I always want to live in, don't we? In fact, we almost feel like that we're entitled to always live in those types of times. You know, times, the successful times, the victorious times, even the heroic times. We think that we should live a, be able to live a smooth sailing, trouble-free life. But that's not what life was like then. And many of us can stand up this morning and testify to the reality that that's not what life is like now. Never was. This side of heaven never will be. But the glad times are there. But this writer doesn't stop there. Not content just to be with the glad. This writer now goes into the sad times. Or the bad times, as it were. I mean, we, he talks about people who were tortured, jeered, murdered, destitute. And frankly, I don't think any of you out there would say, yep, that's the place I want to live. But it's reality. It's the place where they had to live. And it's sometimes the place where we have to live. Though I doubt many of us are tortured and jeered. Well, maybe jeered a little bit. But murdered, not very likely here in North America. But still, it's a place where we don't want to live. And you go to verse um, 39, you get the summary of all this. He says, all these people earned a good reputation. By the way, all these people, the glad and the sad, the good and the bad, all these people earned a good reputation because of their faith. Yet, none of them, the good and the bad, the glad and the sad, none of them received all that God had promised to them. They were the same place that we find ourselves in today. God had something better in mind. Now there's something better now is when we slip into chapter 12. In chapter 12 are these verses that you know, there might even be somebody out there who could stand up and quote those verses. Maybe you've memorized those. 
chapter 12, these first four verses are the verse, well, we usually leave off verse four because we don't like to talk about giving up our lives. We go to verse three. And, um, you know, uh, these are the verses that we go to. These, if, if you're going to preach a sermon on this, these are the verses you preach a sermon on. You do kind of what I did. You just kind of skim over the end of chapter 11, kind of summarize it, but then you focus on chapter 12. These are the f- important verses. By the way, these clouds of witnesses, it says, therefore, we are surrounded, since we are surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses. It's not that these witnesses are kind of like, you know, we're in the stadium running this race, and these clouds of witnesses are sitting in the stands around us, and they're cheering us on, and they're cheering us on in such a way that they don't want us to disappoint them. No, it's not that. It's not that the witnesses are looking to us. We're looking to them. We're looking to them to see how God has worked in their lives. And the way that God has worked in their lives is how it comes then and encourages us and eggs us on to be what we should be. So now we get to this place to answer our question from the beginning. What kind of faith is needed to survive in our troubled worlds and our, frankly, troubled churches today? And the point that chapter 12 makes is very clear. It's right there, and so don't miss it. It's very simply this. Jesus Christ is the ultimate hero of the faith, the witness, of the fa- witness to the faith. He is the one to imitate. He is the something better. Yeah, we learn lessons. We are stirred by the stories of all these people in chapter 11 that we've gone through. Absolutely. But now we come to the ultimate witness. Now we come to the ultimate example. Now we come to the one who we really need to pay attention to. And in doing that, I think we discover something, what I call gritty faith. I think we sometimes look at this passage and we kind of romanticize Jesus. You know, we kind of look at it and say, wasn't it good that he sacrificed his life for us? Absolutely. And we should imitate that, and that should be part of our lives. We should sacrifice ourselves for others. Absolutely. But is that really the focus of what's here? I think when you read it through, I'm not sure that it is. In fact, I've come to the place where I call it gritty faith. It's a moving from faith, belief, and trust to faithfulness of following through in the long term. Now, here's a a definition a dictionary definition, in fact. To be gritty is to be courageously persistent, having strong qualities of tough, uncompromising. Now, I think the key word is here, realism. See, the realism is the realization that it's not just the glad that happens in our lives, but it's also the sad that's there. And to get through those sad times, oh, we can get through the glad times. In fact, the glad times are not always good for us. The glad times we end up forgetting God in. But when the sad times come, the way we get through those is because of those, that gritty faith that's being talked about here. So how do we develop such a gritty faith? Or what is this gritty faith? 
could preach a lot of sermons on this, so I'm going to quickly go through something. I hope you pick it up and spend some time thinking about it. Gritty faith is a faith in community, first of all. A faith in community. You see, community is important because you have people around you that give witness to how God is at work. When you're alone in, in a singular life on your own, it's hard to see sometimes how God is at work. But when you're in community together, you have multiple ways and multiple voices and multiple witnesses about how God is at work in their lives, in the collective life that we have as a community together. So gritty faith is a faith in community. Gritty faith is a faith as a faith that endures in the difficulties of the race or the journey. So it's a realization that the journey's not easy. Sometimes the journey's hard. In fact, the word that is used for race there is a Greek word that if you take it into English, it, it, it has the idea, it, it has a kinship with the English word agony. <laughs> the race can be and is often agony. It's a long-term race. God sets the course before us, both the glad and the sad. Thirdly, gritty faith is a faith that does what is spiritually necessary no matter the cost. Now, it's easy for us to say, yes, the sins of our lives, we need to cast those off. You know, we need to acknowledge them. We need to confess. We need to repent and turn away from those. We say amen to that. Of course. But it's not just talking about sins here. It talks about whatever in our life. It may not even classify as a sin, but something in our life that's going to get in the way of this type of persistent, enduring faith, this looking to Jesus, whatever that might be for you. And frankly, whatever the cost it might be to you to get rid of it. Fourthly, a gritty faith is a faith, faith that lives in the promise of the future. That's what Jesus did here. He says, because of the joy awaiting him or set before him, he endured the cross disregarding its shame. Now he's seated in the place of honor beside God's throne. Now we have to kind of project what was the joy that Jesus was, that kind of spurred him on and kept him on the path, as it were. Well, I think the joy probably was the joy of providing salvation through his act on the cross. But it was also the joy of now being back and ascending and being back with the Father and at the place where he should be, along with the Father. And that was the future that spurred him on. And folks, there's nothing wrong. It's not escapism for us to look to the future that God has promised, a future that won't be here now. Some of it leaks into the here and now, but most of it's left for the then and the there. It's not escapism to look to that. And then it's a faith that keeps Jesus in sight looking unto Jesus. It's a faith where we don't get so far ahead or so far behind that we lose sight of Jesus, some of us, entirely. I think I said earlier, 
who talk about Christians who say that they're followers of Jesus, but they act and talk like they don't even know who Jesus is. Because we've lost sight of Jesus. And then finally, I've added something that's not really not here in Hebrews chapter 12, but I think it fits in here. A faith that takes up its cross and follows. Now again, don't romanticize that. You're taking up a means of execution. You're taking up something that's going to bring death to yourself and who you are so that you can have life to who Jesus is and who he wants you to be. Now, I don't know about you. I look at this list and I, and I think it through. And in some ways, it seems rather simplistic to me. I, I'm, I'm, looking, I'm looking for more than this. You know, I'm looking for details. I mean, where's the plan? I mean, where's the program here? It's easy to say, looking unto Jesus. It just seems simplistic. But, you know, it only seems to be simplistic because really, it's not simple at all. It's not simple at all. I mean, just, just ask this kind of gritty faith, just ask Elijah as he leaves Mount Carmel with the victory over the prophets of Baal and goes to Mount Horeb and he's wanting God to take his life because he's all alone and the queen is still after him. Or just ask Jonah, who's at the end of the book, sitting under the broom tree, angry at God because God showed grace and mercy to the city of Nineveh. No, a gritty faith is not easy. Just ask the father of the demonic, of, this, of his son who was possessed by a demon. And in Mark 9, he comes to the disciples to cast out the demon, and they couldn't do it. And finally, Jesus comes and he asks Jesus to do it. And Jesus says, do you really want me to do this? Do you believe that I can? And his reply resonates with us because he said, yes, Lord, I believe. What else? Help my unbelief. No, it's not easy. You know, in all of this, just ask Peter. Just ask Peter as he stepped out of the boat to walk on the water and he kept his eyes on Jesus and he was doing just fine until the waves all around him drew his attention and he took his eyes off Jesus and he began to sink. Just ask Peter. Just ask Peter in the courtyard of the high priest after the third time that he had just denied Jesus Christ. And as Luke tells us, his eyes went to Jesus, and Jesus' eyes went to him, and they met. And I'm convinced Jesus' eyes weren't saying to him, Peter, how can you do this to me? But they were eyes of compassion, forgiveness. And Peter went out and wept bitterly. You think it's simple? Just ask Jesus. Yes, Jesus, he pled with the Father in the Garden of Gethsemane, a prayer for a different way than the cross. And in the process, Hebrews chapter 5, verses 7 and 8 tells us, and I don't understand this, but it is, somehow he learned obedience. I think obedience is the same concept as faithfulness. Could Jesus have said no to the cross? Well, why is this passage here if he couldn't have said no to the cross? But he didn't. He was faithful. And he carried on. No, no, it's, it's not simple. It takes, first of all, focus on Jesus, not other Christians or other churches. 
It takes entering the story of Jesus, and that means you spend some time in the Word of God reading about Jesus and knowing that story and knowing about the whole story of Scripture and God's work. It takes prayer for guidance and endurance and surrender. It takes affirming God's faithfulness and goodness. And it takes a ripening of the fruit of the Spirit. Because frankly, this is something that you and I just can't conjure up on our own. But the Spirit has to do it. One of the best illustrations I've ever found is an old one of this type of faithfulness. It's found in a man called Blondin. Back in the 1860s, a long time ago, he was one of the world's greatest tightrope walkers, and he had strung a tightrope over the Niagara Gorge at Niagara Falls, 1,100 feet across. And he went back and forth over it, first of all blindfolded, then on stilts, then he went across it pushing a wheelbarrow. And then finally he comes back and he looks around the crowds that were gathered around. And he says, who thinks that I can cross with someone on my back? And the cheers go up. Of course, they've watched him. They know that he can do it. Head faith. Right, who will hop on my back and cross the gorge with me? And the cheers went to silence, as you can imagine. The trust factor is hard to come by. His manager, Harry Colcord, was there, and he persuaded Harry that he could do it and get on his back, and so he did. And as they started off across the, uh, you know, uh, with, uh, as, as Blondin started off with Harry on his back across the tightrope walk, he, uh, he whispered in his ear as the story goes, and he whispered this. Look up, Harry. You are no longer Colcord. You are blondin. Be a part of me, mind, body, and soul. If I sway, sway with me. Do not attempt to do any balancing yourself. No, it doesn't transfer totally to us. I mean, we don't become Jesus. We become like Jesus. I mean, we sway when Jesus sways. We watch and we imitate her eyes on Jesus. Gritty faith follows him. No matter how hard, how long, no matter how waiting on the promises you have to do. So the final question as we come to the end is simply this. How gritty is your faith this morning? How gritty is your faith? Worship team, come on up. We're going to sing a song. I asked Ken to start off with Come Thou Fount, as you can tell for a purpose. I asked him to follow the sermon with this particular song. One of the things I've noticed is that as an older person, that uh, when I look at some of you older, younger folks out there, and frankly, that's becoming most of you anymore, when I look at you younger folks out there, I, 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 I see that sometimes it's hard for you, it's challenging for you to sing the old hymns that we old folk like to hear, sing. And, you know, 
the flip side is true too. If you watch, I've sometimes, I sit out there on Sunday mornings and I look around, I look around to my peers and it's true. And sometimes it's hard for us older folk to, and it's challenging to us to sing the songs that you sing and that we sing together here on a Sunday morning. One thing I've noticed though is this. When we sing the song that we're going to sing now, something happens to us older folk. In fact, the other couple of songs that we may have sung before that, you know, it, it was challenging for us to sing those songs. But when it comes to this particular song, one of your songs, it's not. I see us older folk perk up. I see us almost belted out. And the reason is, is because it's a testimony song. And it bears testimony to who they are and what's gone on in their life. And it goes like this. All my life you have been faithful. All my life you have been so, so good. With every breath that I am able, I will sing of the goodness of God. I will sing of the goodness of God. Ken, let's sing that together. Thanks for listening to the E-Free Lethbridge podcast. We'll see you next week.